My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Maurice Schweitzer is an award-winning professor at the Wharton School of Business and author of the book Friend and Foe. He has published more than 100 articles and been cited more than 10,000 times. He is also the former president of the International Association for Conflict Management. Maurice earned an undergraduate degree from Cal Berkeley in economics and a PhD from Wharton in operations and information management. I hope you enjoyed learning from Maurice Schweitzer today, because I always do. Maurice, it's so great to connect today. One of my first guests on this podcast was Adam Galinsky, your co-author on the book Friend and Foe. I read the book several years ago, loved it. Uh, you and I spoke years ago at a conference in San Diego, uh, so it's great to reconnect again today. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for including me um, to be part of this. There, there was a reflecting on this question of like, you know, what would I like to share? There are a couple of ideas that I wanted to to share. The first one is our inability to separate what we know from how we've come to know it. Here's an example. A lot of my research is on negotiations. We have a classic paradigm that we've used to study negotiations. In this paradigm, we typically have people read background material, say a buyer and a seller. They then negotiate. We might manipulate something in that negotiation and they reach an agreement. And this paradigm has allowed us to make a lot of interesting discoveries, but the paradigm has also really limited what we can know. So for example, as a field, we know very little about long-term relationships, about what happens after an agreement is reached, about deep levels of experience, about repeated negotiations that happen over a long period of time. And I think if we look as researchers, and I think as people in general, about what we know, it's important to keep in mind the tools or the methods we've used to learn that information, because that really shapes what we know. A second key idea that's been rattling around for me is uh, work on censored environments. And Dan Filer really brought this to my attention. So I want to give him the credit that, that he deserves for really highlighting how important censored environments are. And by censored environment, what I mean is we don't observe some part of the system that's happening around us. So 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 imagine somebody selling pizzas, they run out of pizzas and they don't see what demand would have been if they'd had more pizzas to sell. So many retailers, for example, can't know exactly what demand would have been. Now, online retailers can now get more signals about that. But there's so many cases where we have this censored environments. And I remember, and this, this is what motivated me to write an article with a repeated trust game in it. I remember being with my department chair uh, who was telling me how incredibly hardworking and how great the staff were when my own experience had been 
whenever this department chair left, and she spent a lot of time out of the office, whenever she left, the staff were not working very hard. They were really distracted, chatting. They It was as if there was an on-off switch, and they worked really hard when she was around and observing them, but they worked not at all when she was out of the office. And yet, from her experience, this censored perception, like everything she saw was an incredibly hardworking, engaged staff. And she drew this inference from a biased sample. And so I think this idea of a censored environment is, it, it's, it's all around us. It makes learning quite difficult. And so it's important for us to think about, hey, is this a complete sample? Or is it censored in some way? And then the third idea that I wanted to squeeze in, um, and this is work that I that I did with Emma Levine on deception, where this idea about the link between deception and selfishness, or to think about kindness, where, where I've been wrestling with the idea that when we lie to others, a classic lie basically is self-interested and takes advantage of somebody else. But in so many cases, we lie to other people in ways that could be kind and benevolent. So we might lie to terminally ill patients, or we might lie to small children, or we might lie to protect somebody's secrets. There are many cases in which we lie in ways that are not purely self-interested. And to really sort of disentangle deception from selfishness has been something that I've been really interested in. And I think um, it makes the challenge of figuring out when and when not to lie uh, far more nuanced than we often describe it. Yeah, three really interesting ideas. And, and I'd love to dig into each of these a little bit. This first one, this inability to separate what we know from how we've come to know it. The first thing it made me think of, and I'm not sure if this is quite as relevant as what you're thinking, but I'm going to share it anyway, because maybe it is. This has happened to me multiple times in life where I will do something and I will have completely forgotten where I learned that thing. So for example, highlighting books. When I read books now, I highlight. And I, that's just what I do. I was rereading a book just a couple years ago and the book encouraged you to highlight while reading. And then I remembered, Oh, 20 years ago, when I first read this book, it told me to do that. And that's when I, when I started highlighting and I didn't know if there was a name for this, but you know what? I I can't remember where I learned the thing that I'm doing. Sounds like maybe this is a slightly different phenomena that you're looking at where the lessons we take away from our experience are maybe dependent on where we got that information. So maybe we, we can't extrapolate as much from that circumstance as we think. Is is that where you're going with this lesson? Or maybe if, if you could well, expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So, so let me sort of like build on that idea first, where I think the source of how we learn things is quite important. And I also think that we're not very good at remembering that source. And there's a great article I used to assign it to my PhD students where this guy writes how he had come up with this idea that he was sure was original uh, to himself. Yeah. 
And then he said, I remember like I, I was reading back on this article and I had underlined this idea and I'd written notes in the margins in my handwriting. I I had clearly read this other guy coming up with this idea. And yet, you know, it, years later, it occurred to me and I thought it was my own original yeah. idea. Yeah. So, so we can't really trust our memories. I think that's an important idea. But, but what I mean by, by this is, you know, and this is, I think, particularly useful for scholars thinking about research. But um, I'm working with a current PhD student, uh, Lexi Gordon, looking at the advice literature. And there's a paradigm with scores of research articles studying what's termed advice using this judge-advisor paradigm. Mm -hmm. And this paradigm is very contrived it's a very uh it's a very simplified version of what advice might be it allows us to measure how much we rely on somebody else's input in a quantitative judgment so we're trying to forecast how long the nile river is or something like that we're it's it's a very limited paradigm it's very tractable so people have used it quite a lot but it doesn't allow us to ask so many interesting questions like who do we ask, who do we seek out for advice or whom do we avoid asking for advice? Uh, or when do we ask for advice? Like, like there, there are all these questions that we can't ask because the par the paradigm doesn't allow it. Got it. And so, so, so my thinking was, Hey, as scholars, it's important to sort of take a step back. And of course, we can add on to an existing literature. Using existing paradigms is really important. But it's also important for us to think about that paradigm. Hey, how are we studying something? And what does that allow us to answer? And what does it not enable us to answer? Okay, yeah, that's helpful. And, and just to the first point that turns out is a little bit of a tangent, but I still think it's really interesting. I love this idea of we're not good at remembering the source. And I wonder if I do have any, if I've ever had an original idea or if everything, and, and actually I had this thought just a couple of days ago, I was thinking about kind of my skill set, and I had the thought, I don't come up with any original ideas, but I read a lot. So I have a lot of ideas, but nothing's original. Everything is just, you know, I'm just repeating what other people have said, but I think this is so interesting. It's so easy to forget where we learn the things that we do. And then this, you know, as you, as you went into detail on, on the, main point of your lesson, it, it made me think that it's a little bit related to that second point of yours in that the paradigm in essence is censoring the environment. Right. I think that, that that's right. So the second idea, I, I, we're in this censored environment as we, we're not, there are all these things that we don't see and we, we make choices in life. And so we never see the counterfactual yeah. and i think that's really important uh you know sort of like you know like this 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 head of the department who made this misperception i mean i remember being shocked by it um but then realizing hey we're what we see what we experience shapes our understanding. And 
and it's important for us to realize that it's it's very difficult to take perspectives to to imagine what isn't there and if we are in some censored and sort of biased situation what we learn could be often quite the wrong thing yeah i so i love this lesson i for for months when i was trying to do, decide what to do for my dissertation i was thinking about something on counterfactual thinking because it intrigues me so much for example the the um dean that you're talking about uh that was her reality her reality as certain as you and i are sitting here today her reality was that they are working hard but because of the inability to see the counterfactual see what happens when she's not looking because of this censored world that we all live in she'd come to the completely not just a, a you know not just a biased it was biased but to the completely opposite conclusion right right and i actually designed an experiment based on this where people played a trust game in a repeated way and we told the receiver like each time like they're going to get feedback on some rounds and no feedback on other rounds so they're going to pass you money and say this is a feedback round they're going to find out what you did and there they return a lot of the money so the money gets tripled yeah. and they return half of it and then oh they're gonna get feedback this time they pass the money then you return and they get a lot a lot more money when, when they passed mm -hmm. And then they say, oh, you're not going to get feedback this time. You're not going to get feedback. And now the person, oh, I'm keeping all the money. They'll never know. And so that round happens. And there's another feedback round and so on. We go back and forth. And as the experiment goes on, the, the second player is either keeping the money or returning a generous portion of it back. And they're reacting completely according to whether or not feedback is going to be seen i mean if, if their actions are going to be seen and what happens is the person who's acting who's passing the money every time they pass the money all they see is this generous behavior and mm -hmm. by the as the experiment goes on they're trusting this person more and more and more i mean th their ratings go higher they feel like this is a super trustworthy person and and their personal experience, everything they see is this person's trustworthy. Um, and and we we tried throwing the kitchen sink at this. Like even when that person switched and be, you know, plays that second person role and is a light switch themselves, like like changing their behavior as a function of whether or not there's a feedback round, they still don't get it. Like, like we're really, we really struggle to imagine what we can't see. It makes me think of this concept that was at least popularized for me by Nassim Taleb, the problem of the turkey. The turkey is born and the farmer takes great care of the turkey. And every day the turkey gets better fed and gets fatter and fatter and fatter and thinks that, you know, they're, they're conf every day the turkey's confidence in what their life is going to be continues to increase as their well-being continues to increase and they never know what they don't know and then their head gets chopped off the day before thanksgiving and when they were at their peak confidence of what they knew their life would be that was when they were at their most vulnerable moment 
So any solution? Yeah. So there sounds like there's not much of a solution for this, well, at least in your research. So, so, so my view is to think about, I mean, I'd say two things. One, um, to think about the environment, sort of think about, hey, am I in a situation sort of, you know, like this manager that doesn't see behavior some of the time? Am I in a situation like this retailer that can't observe lost sales? Like what, what data am I not seeing? And then second, to realize, you know, hey, what I don't see could be quite informative. That's, there, there could be real information there that, that I'm not getting. Okay. Well, that just final thought on that is it made me think of a friend who said, you know, my, my child, they tell me everything. And I know they tell me everything because we have these great talks. And my immediate thought was, well, yeah, but you don't know all the things they're not telling you. <laughs> exactly. So that's exactly right. Like, like that, that, that for us to assume that because they reveal a lot of information here that we have all the information that can't possibly be, be right. And you know, that people, assume, people assume that, you know, oh yeah, my kids would never do that. I'm like, well, what did you do as a kid? Yeah. <laughs> did you tell your parents everything? Uh, you know, are, are your friends' kids telling them everything? Yeah. So you know, especially like, relevant in parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So final lesson, uh, the, the research that you did with Emma Levine on deception and this was actually some of the research that I saw you present back at SPSP in, in San Diego years ago. And I believe Emma was going to present and couldn't, but I had heard Emma present the research at the University of Utah. And so I thought this research was really interesting in that so often people lie for self-interested reasons, but what happens when people lie for benevolent reasons? And at that time, I had just recently read a, a small book by Sam Harris, where he was making the case for always telling the truth so that you don't deny people access to reality. And so I've been, I've had this tension in my head about, uh, do I lie to try to help somebody? But what if when I try to help them, I end up causing some amount of harm by denying them access to reality, even though I did it for benevolent reasons? Yeah. So I think the takeaway that I would offer is that it's, it's complicated and a little more complicated than the way we often talk about deception, like never lie to me. We talk about yeah, kids, yeah. like never lie to me, always tell the truth. And then five minutes later, oh, tell grandma you love the sweater. That she's <laughs> right. Or yeah. Oh, there's a door. Yeah. Tell them I'm not home. And like, we're like, we're, we're, we're effectively, you know, or like there's a birthday yet. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell Johnny about your birthday party. Uh, you know, tell her that you haven't had it yet, or like, like we're we're sending mixed messages, and we yeah. leave it as an object lesson for our kids to figure out how to navigate our social world. Where on the one hand we say never lie, and on the other hand, we say, okay, well here's <laughs> we'll lie in this case, or you know. In politeness, we have to lie and tell people that they look better than they actually look, or we liked gifts more than we actually liked them. Like, look, we're we're sending complicated mixed messages, yeah. and I think we can be clear. But, but this idea of, um, I mean, 
honesty gives people greater autonomy. They have more information. And, you know, Emma Levine did some really fantastic work, you know, basically looking at, you know, when people can act on that, when that information really gives them autonomy to act, then that's more useful. So telling somebody they have an ill-fitting suit two minutes before they have to give a talk isn't helpful. Right, good idea, yeah. But two weeks before they give a talk is useful. And so, so maybe the costs and benefits are different in those two cases. Interesting, yeah. You know, and 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 I sort of like flip it to say also sometimes honesty can be quite mean, where people will say, "Well, I'm just being honest." Yeah, yeah. And as if that justifies unkind behavior. Yeah. Now, 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 coming back, sort of quickly, what you were saying, sometimes there's some self-interest where it's a mixed message so maybe you know a patient is really anxious and a physician says oh you're going to be fine in part to give this patient some confidence but in part maybe to sort of enable them to get on to their next meeting yeah or you know when your spouse says oh do i look good you know in this dress you might say, yeah, you look fantastic. I think it's time to go. Uh, so so sometimes, you know, there's there, there could be mixed motives for what we do. And, and there I think we have to be quite careful because yeah. deception, deception often is self-interested and unkind. But in some cases, it's really more nuanced, more complicated. And that's something that I really find quite interesting. So this just reminded me of uh, an experience that really is close to home for me. Um, my father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. He knows he's been given a death sentence. Uh, this was uh, 10 years ago now. So uh, doctors prescribe a treatment, Tarceva, and it's it's relatively new. And the treatment is working, meaning it's the, the cancer has stopped growing at the moment. Doctor calls my dad in, you know, this is maybe a year and a half into his treatment and says, um, treatment's working. The cancer has stopped growing. And to me, what I wanted to hear the doctor say was, we've, you know, your treatment has paused the cancer. It's going to pick up again. And I felt like my dad and and I was there with my brother and my brother and my me and my brother, I, I we saw my dad take what we thought was false hope. We, we we felt like my dad heard you're cured. And the doctor seemed like he was kind of implying that. And then six months, nine months later, he goes back to the doctor. Cancer has started growing again. And of course, he's devastated. And at the time, I was frustrated with the doctor. Because I thought you gave him a false sense of hope. You let him believe that he was more cured than he was. But as time has gone on, I thought, well, I don't know what it's like to face death. And my dad was a really smart guy. And I think he, he actually probably knew exactly what was going on. But 
in that moment, I think, you know, when you're staring death in the face, if you can hold out maybe just a little hope that maybe it's more than just paused, you know, I, I think he probably made a more conscious choice than I realized. And anyway, it, it made me, I've, I've thought about your research in, in that instance with the doctor and I've, I've <clears throat> had different thoughts over the years, but lately I've come more to the side of, I, I think everybody actually knew what was going on even though maybe some of the information wasn't portrayed exactly in the precise way verbally, maybe people still knew what was going on. I mean, I think that's a really profound experience. And I, um, my father too went through a, a pretty similar experience. He had lung cancer. Um, the, I think those questions are are important, and they're they're more nuanced than the very simple, never lie. Yeah, yeah. And I, and like you, like I like I I don't have the right answer. Like like I don't, I don't know. I mean, sort of. Like you talked about going back and forth. Like, what was the right, the right thing to say? Doctors have to figure it out, and they're really figuring it out based on a limited set of experiences without a lot of formal training or guidance. We don't, as scholars, we don't we haven't given them a lot of tools to deal with this. Mm -hmm. um, and they are very complicated problems. And I will say what I admire about the doctor and appreciate it is I do think with the kind of experience of hindsight and thinking about it, I think he was purely benevolent. I don't think as a doctor, he had a problem telling somebody that, you know, that's what he does for his job. I think he was thinking, how can I improve the, you know, th these few months of, of life for this person? And so I, I admire that because, you know, you might take a, a deontological view and just say, thou shalt never lie, you know, always tell the truth. Well, philosophers have disagreed about this for thousands of years, because what if the benefits of lying outweigh the harms, you know, and then all of a sudden, if you're in the consequentialist world, then the ethical thing to do, of course, is to lie if the benefits outweigh the harm. So, Yeah, it's it's hard because we want, I mean, you don't want to preserve people's autonomy so they can make choices. Um, but there may be these side effects that, uh, I mean, I think I've been interested in this idea and I, I, and I just, you know, just sort of throw out the idea that we should be more deliberate and thoughtful um, rather than saying never lie. And then, yeah. carving out exceptions sort of as we go, I think we could be a little more thoughtful, a little more deliberate. And as parents, as teachers, as managers to think about, okay, he, you know, here's when we tell the truth. Here are the few carve outs when we're very clear about these except you know these set yeah. of exceptions yeah doing it for benevolent reasons and not self-interested reasons well maurice this this was so fun for me uh like i said i've i've heard well i've read your books i've read your research i've heard you present your research we've never actually been able to engage on some of it and i've learned new things from you 
uh, obviously we share a lot of the same interests. I've taught negotiation for years and my, much of my research and judgment, decision, judgment and decision-making. And, uh, so it's, it's great to be able to kind of dig into some of these topics with you. And I just, again, really appreciate you sharing your time and lessons with me today. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. What great lessons from Maurice. First, we struggle to separate what we know from how we've come to know it. When we think we know something, it's important to remember the tools and methods we use to learn that information because that determines how much we actually know. Second, our environment is censored. We don't know what we don't know, and this makes learning difficult. So when we think we know something, remember our environment is censored. Third, so often when people lie, they do so for selfish reasons. But some lies are motivated by kindness and therefore can have a different impact than selfish lies. In summary, we should constantly challenge ourselves when we think we know something. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with two requests and one suggestion. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox each week, sign up for Nate's notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And now a suggestion. If you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thank you for your support.